Welcome to the Ford Runners Podcast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about Frank J. Atwood. And where did you do your research on this one, Katie? I watched the FBI files and I went to the Frank Atwood story.gr, whatever that means. I'm not sure what a .gr is, but uh, where are we going for this one? This one is here in Tucson, Arizona. Nice. Well, you want to go ahead and start us off? On September 17, 1984, Debbie Carlson sat down with her eight-year-old daughter, Vicki Lynn Hoskinson, to write a belated birthday card to her aunt. Debbie, Vicki, and Vicki's sister, Stephanie, lived in Flowing Wells, a suburb of Tucson, Arizona. After Debbie and Vicki had written the birthday card, Vicki asked her mother if she could go take her bike to the mailbox and mail the card. Normally, Debbie would have the girls use the buddy system, but Stephanie had stayed late at school for track practice that day. She decided that Vicky was old enough to go alone, as she was extremely responsible for her age, and the mailbox was only around two blocks away, located in front of a Circle K at Wetmore and Romero. Around a quarter after three, Vicky hopped onto her pink bicycle and headed down the street. That Circle K is no longer there. It's not. They didn't have, like, a normal mailbox. It was one of the UPS, like, drop boxes, the blue bins. Okay. I don't know why they didn't have a mailbox, but... Maybe there wasn't a mail route in the neighborhood there. This is the 80s. Around 20 minutes later, Stephanie arrived home, telling her mother track practice had been canceled. Debbie asked Stephanie if she'd seen her sister, as she sent her to the mailbox and she hadn't returned home. Stephanie agreed to take her bike and go look for Vicky, assuming she'd stopped at her friend's home to play on the way back. As she rode around the neighborhood, Stephanie came upon Vicky's pink bike laying in the road, abandoned. She returned home and informed her mother of the discovery, who drove to the scene, grabbed the bike, and went back home to call police. Pima County Sheriff deputies arrived quickly and took a report before they began to canvass the neighborhood. At the Circle K, the manager told deputies that he'd recognized Vicky's photo, but he'd not seen her that day. Deputies also went to Vicky's friend's home, where she had been spotted by the five-year-old son. He told deputies that Vicky had come by and asked if Jennifer was home, leaving after he told her that she was not. So how far away was the house from the Circle K at this point? It's like two blocks, maybe like 10 minutes there and back, so not far. She should not have been gone for 20, 30 minutes. As they were interviewing the five-year-old, two older boys rode their bikes up and told the deputies they'd spotted something. They'd seen Vicky earlier, leaving the convenience store, but not long before, they'd rode their bikes past a small black sports car with California license plates. It had been driving so slow through the neighborhood that the boys had to ride their bikes around it. It was headed directly in Vicky's direction, but they'd been gone before they'd seen what happened when the car and Vicky met. Do we know what kind of car it is? They didn't say specifically, but eventually they figured out it was more than likely a Datsun 280Z, some sort of Datsun. Not long after Debbie's call to PCSD, a homicide detective was assigned to the case and a command center was set up in a nearby elementary school. That evening, after news had spread, a large group of police and volunteers searched around the area that Vicky had last been seen. That area is pretty close to a set of train tracks, right? In the freeway, yeah. In the freeway. So where all did they search going in which direction, do you know? Um, I think they went kind of in a circular motion out from the neighborhood in a big circle. It's hard to say because the neighborhoods and everything are so well, not so different, but they're a lot more urbanized than they were back then it was funny because in the fbi files they kept showing all these nice houses with like lawn front yards <laughs> perfectly green and they had like one shot of mount lemon and that was it and that was actually in tucson this is definitely not that area no 
Tracking dogs were used, but none were able to pick up Vicky's scent. Generally, when this happens, it means that the person has left the scene in a car. After Vicky had been missing for 24 hours, PCSD was able to ask the FBI to join the case. The next day, September 18th, deputies, detectives, and FBI agents continued to question neighbors and field phone calls at the command center. At one point, a mother brought her four-year-old son into the command center to speak to deputies. He explained as well as he could that the day before, when he'd been playing in his front yard, he'd seen a brown race car hit Vicky on her bike. A woman got out of the car and grabbed Vicky, putting her into the car and driving away, leaving the bike where it was later found by Stephanie. So are they taking this four-year-old's observance seriously at this point? They did, yeah. I mean, there's really not much that could have influenced him. He didn't know what was happening. He wasn't old enough to understand that she was missing. And they talked to his parents, and they were like, yeah, there's no way he could have made this up. He's not that creative. The boy's mother said that he'd sometimes got confused about gender, frequently thinking a man with long hair was a woman. Not long later, two other boys from the neighborhood reported similar stories. One said that he'd seen a man chase down Vicky, grab her, and put her in his car. Another said that he'd seen a car hit Vicky before grabbing her and putting her in the car. All described the car in a similar way, a small brown sports car. One of the boys was able to recall exactly what kind of car they'd seen, a brown Datsun 280Z. Fairly uh, flippant to be doing it in broad daylight like that, like... What is, like, the psychology of something behind that? Is there some reason why someone would not be afraid of being caught? By, and why would they do something in broad daylight like that? Is it a convenience thing or what? Convenience, maybe. If they hadn't seen anyone around, they probably thought they were perfectly safe. Or if the only one watching you was a four-year-old, I don't think you'd be that concerned that a four-year-old is going to say something and be believed. I'm sure if he just went up to his mom and he was like, oh, some girl got hit by a car, they would have been like, Hmm. I don't believe you. (laughs) Okay. More sightings of a brown or black 280Z were reported by other people in the neighborhood, having occurred in the days leading up to the 17th and on the 17th. Some people reported the driver was a shorter woman with dark shoulder-length hair, and some reported it was a man, and those who had seen the license plate said it was a California plate. All of the people who'd seen the car had noted the driver was acting suspiciously, either just hanging around, looking into houses, or even pulling up in front of a young girl's home and cussing her out before driving away. When detectives went to the school to ask employees if they'd seen anything suspicious, they got similar reports. The school's librarian reported seeing a black 280Z driving back and forth in front of the school around 3 on the 17th. The most important piece of evidence regarding the 280Z came from Sam Hall, the PE teacher. He told detectives that on the 17th, he noticed a black 280Z parked in an alley near the school with a man sitting inside. He got an odd feeling, so he wrote the California license plate number down. That's a fairly smart teacher. I guess that part of teacher training is to look out for suspicious vehicles, or is it just something that he had, like, an instinctual thing to do? No, I mean, if you see, like, especially a man just sitting in a car watching children play outside, you usually are super fucking creeped out by that, I would think. Even not as a teacher. Yeah. Being that it was 1984, it took a while to track an out-of-state license plate number, but it eventually returned belonging to a man named Frank Jarvis Atwood. They requested a rap sheet from California and were eventually informed that Atwood was currently on parole and had previously been in prison for child molestation and kidnapping charges. Sure that they'd found their suspect, detectives went straight to the Los Angeles address that his car was registered to. 
The address turned out to be his parents' home, who had seen him a few days before, but were now unaware where Atwood may be. Detectives gave their business card to the couple and asked them to call if they had any new information. A few hours later, Atwood's mother received a phone call from him. His car had broken down in Texas, and he needed her to wire money to him to have it fixed. Being extremely overprotective, she agreed and said nothing to her husband. Fortunately, he had overheard the conversation and copied down the address she'd written down and left the home to find a payphone. Contacting the detectives, he told them where to find Atwood, and the search began. At this time, he's just a suspect, though, right? Like, he just happens to fit their criteria too spot on, including the license plate number and everything? Pretty much. I mean, I think in the detectives' minds, he was more than a suspect. I think they, like, were 99.9% sure that they had their person, and this was, like, the end of it. But technically, he should have just been a suspect, yes. Or at least a person of interest. After many phone calls, police in Texas arrived at the repair shop and arrested Atwood, along with another man. He was taken in and questioned when detectives from PCSD arrived in Texas. Atwood openly admitted to not only being in Tucson on the 17th, but also that he'd been in Vicky's neighborhood that same day. He said that he was staying in a nearby park, and around 3 p.m. he'd left to go meet his drug dealer. He didn't return to the park until 5, but refused to tell detectives what he'd been doing at that time. What kind of drugs was he taking? Nobody mentioned. Interesting. So I'm not sure. The man who'd been taken into custody with Atwood gave the same story, plus one huge detail. He said when Atwood had returned at five, his hands and clothes were covered in blood, and he had cactus needles stuck in his pants. Atwood told him he'd gotten into a fight with his drug dealer and stabbed him, but refused to give any more details on what had happened. Back in Tucson, detectives went to the park to see if anyone could corroborate the story. Another man told detectives that he'd let Atwood stay in his trailer for a few days, and that on the night of the 17th, he'd shown up in bloody clothing and had a bloody knife with him. Yet another couple was found who reported the same thing. Atwood was covered in blood, but told them he'd stabbed a drug dealer. So what did they think was more likely at this point? So he's got people corroborating him for his drug dealer story, that that's what he said happened on that night? Yeah, detectives were like 100% sure at this point that he'd killed Vicky. When Atwood's car was processed at the FBI headquarters, zero physical evidence was found inside. There were no hairs, fibers, or blood belonging to Vicky on any surface inside the vehicle. On the outside of the car, though, a small spot of pink paint matching that on Vicky's bike was found on the bumper, along with chrome paint matching the car being found on Vicky's bike. Detectives also found damage to a mailbox post not far from where Vicky's bike had originally been found that matched the height of Atwood's 280Z. With this evidence, he was extradited back to Arizona to stand trial. What does the damage to the mailbox have to do with any of that? I have no fucking idea. Nobody would explain it. I don't know how. They recreated how they think that Vicky was hit on her bike. And I don't know if, like, he hit her and then backed up and hit the mailbox post. But everybody everybody kept mentioning it, and I don't know where it relates to anything. While waiting for trial, a woman walking her dog in a desert area on April 12, 1985, came across a small human skull around 20 miles from where Vicky's bike had originally been found. The remains were skeletal and had been spread around by animals, making it impossible to determine the cause of her death. When the news of her discovery was printed in the papers, a witness came forward and reported seeing Atwood in the area around the time of Vicky's disappearance, accompanied by a child, but leaving alone. Atwood was eventually tried and convicted of Vicky's murder and sentenced to death. 
Recently, Arizona's Attorney General has filed paperwork to prepare to set an execution date for Atwood and hope to do so by the end of 2021. So when this witness came forward, was it how long after the discovery of the bones did this witness come forward to say that they saw someone that matched Atwood's description with a child go into the forest, woods, were desert, whatever? Um, I'm not sure how long it was after her remains were found, but this was... April 1985, so this was around nine months after she'd originally gone missing. So it's, I mean, suspicious that she just randomly, like, popped up and was like, hey, I never said anything before, but here's a huge critical piece of evidence that I have now that you found her body. Yeah, if you ever see an adult male walk a child into the desert and they come back alone, it's time to call the police. Yeah, and especially because it was now that this woman knew exactly where she had been found. She could specifically pinpoint and say, oh, yeah, I definitely saw him there. Instead of just saying, like, I saw him enter some random area and not knowing if that's where her body would be found. Right. The lack of physical evidence linking Atwood to Vicky's murder has caused some supporters to raise question of his guilt. According to the website dedicated to Atwood, along with a quote-unquote book written about him, the Pima County Sheriff's Department planted evidence and ignored leads that would have proved Atwood had nothing to do with Vicky's death. To begin, they say that Atwood was a perfect child, an acolyte and choir boy at the family's church, along with playing classical music and participating in sports. I don't think that means that you're not a child murderer molester just because you do all those things. I'm not sure who made this website, but it sounds like it was his wife who he married after he was convicted and went to prison. So. Uh. When he was 14, his entire life changed when he was kidnapped and sexually assaulted. From this point, Atwood began to do drugs, strayed from his church, and began participating in sexually perverse acts. In his mid-teens, Atwood began selling sexual favors to older men, and at 18, kissed a 10-year-old child. At 24, he molested a 7-year-old boy. I can't find any other information on this claim, but a book written by him and his wife that I did not read claims that Atwood was only in Tucson in September 1984 because he was taking part in a large drug ring. Mm. Admit to something that you're still a shady person, but you're not an actual child murderer. Yeah. Normally I would have read the book, but from the description, it's about meeting his wife and then finding Orthodox Christianity after he'd been convicted, and how great his life has been in prison, with him getting degrees from multiple colleges and his other accomplishments. Well, he's about to be deaded. Yeah, it's pretty much just like, you know, he was a really great child, and this happened, and it made him do bad things, and then now he's got a Greek Orthodox pastor, and he's just the greatest man alive. It's just weird, so I wasn't going to waste my time. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want his people getting any money either. The book that I did read that's available on his website mentioned one huge factor that apparently points to Atwood's innocence. During the first few days of investigation after Vicky had disappeared, a woman who worked at the Tucson Mall contacted detectives believing that she'd seen Vicky. During her shift at a toy store, a woman came in with a small child that closely resembled Vicky who appeared to be extremely upset. According to the worker, the woman seemed to be buying the toy to placate the child. A composite sketch was created, and some of the people who had reported the suspicious 280Z identified the composite as the woman they'd seen driving it. Police took this composite around the Flowing Wells area and actually found people who were able to identify the woman. She was a local troublemaker named Annette Fries. 
When they took the photo of Fries to the Circle K Vicky had been traveling to, the manager identified her as someone that frequented the store. So she was a known neighborhood associate? Like, she just was known around the neighborhood or what? Yeah, she was, it sounded like she was more than likely mentally ill and was just one of those, like, kind of strange outgoing people that you see a lot around Tucson. Like, everybody knows them when you see them side, standing on the side of the road because they just are constantly just being weird. Detectives also learned that Fries lived only a few miles from the kidnap site and that she'd been gone most of the afternoon and did not return home until late at night. A Circle K employee who was interviewed reported a conversation with Fries on September 14th. She had come into the store and began telling the worker that she had lost her daughter in an illegal adoption when she was three, and she was now eight and attended the school down the street, which happened to be the same school Vicky attended. She also claimed her lost daughter's name was Vicky, and the child was unaware that Fries was her real mother. As reports of Fries hit the local news, more Tucson mall workers came forward and reported seeing a woman that matched Fries' photo with a child that looked like Vicky on September 17th. How come they hadn't stepped forward before now? I'm not sure. It's just one of those things where I'm sure they didn't think much of it because you see a lot of women with children at the mall, and when they saw her photo and Vicky's photo, I guess they put two and two together. Detectives also learned that Fries drove a brown Datsun station wagon, which matched some of the reports of the brown car that had been seen by many. Vicky's mother, Debbie, held on to hope that Fries was the suspect and that she'd simply kidnapped Vicky and kept her somewhere alive. Even after Atwood's arrest, Debbie was still not sure exactly which story to believe until the paint evidence was found on Atwood's 280Z. And for reference, here is a photo of the composite supposedly of Fries compared to a picture of Atwood. And if you ask me, it's the same fucking person. Yeah, it looks very similar. The nose is kind of what gives it away there. Yeah, so I don't know. They said he was wearing... or. she, we're talking about fries, they said she was wearing these, like, long earrings, and, but I don't know. I saw a photo of her, too, and she does look like the composite, but I feel like if you saw Atwood, you could definitely say that's the, that's him. Yeah. The bumper evidence is another point of contention mentioned on the Atwood website. Apparently, in photos taken by the FBI after the initial seizure of the car, it's quote-unquote obvious that the bumper had been removed and reinstalled. They also point to images of the car, where you can see the reflection of a man holding Vicky's bicycle in the bumper of the 280Z. I looked at the picture, and I can't see it anywhere. I stared at it forever, but apparently you can see there's a yellow arrow pointing to it. I don't fucking know what it's pointing to, but apparently it's a bike. I don't see a bicycle. I see the man taking the picture, but I don't see the bicycle. Yeah, and their thing is that those two, Atwood's car and the bike, should not have been in the same area because that would mean that they basically planted the evidence. Finally, they say the presence of Adipocure where Vicky's body was discovered proves that she had been buried at least a foot down. And this is basically like when your body fat decomposes and mixes with water, it creates this like weird fatty substance. They found a ton of this in John Wayne Gacy's basement. Oh. So everyone probably knows it from that. That's kind of gross. Yeah. They say that the timeline when Atwood supposedly kidnapped and killed Vicky did not allow time for him to bury her in the desert. The area where he, the area where she was found in 1985 was searched by air, ground, and canines, and no sign of Vicky was ever discovered. 
Atwood's arrest on September 20th would have made it impossible for him to return to the area after the searches were over and bury her body. I'm not entirely sure what to think of all of this, although I don't believe it completely proves Atwood's innocence. It does raise enough reasonable doubt that he probably should not be on death row for her murder, at least, like, speaking strictly in legal terms. But his prior convictions for his sex crimes against children, I think, kind of cancel out all of the possibility of his innocence for this murder, and he probably should be in prison. Yeah, you're probably correct. My theory is he's both Fry, Fry's and Atwood. It's possible. I mean, Annette Fry's could have just been, like, just a weird woman that everyone knew that looked like him, but nobody had ever seen him before, so you easily confuse them. Yeah, the thing about uh, her thinking her kid is at the school, and, like, that whole story is really weird and creepy. Yeah, and, I mean, she was gone, so there is a possibility that she was out at the mall with Vicky, but it's just strange to me that she drove a Datsun station wagon, which is extremely hard to confuse with the 280Z. They look completely different, and I can see where you can confuse a dirty 280Z being brown when it's actually black. That makes a lot more sense. And everyone said it was a 280Z with California plates. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure he did it. Yeah. Like, I'm not gonna, there's not really much doubt in my mind, but it is awful suspicious with the fry shit, the Annette Fry shit. Yeah, I don't think he should be executed for it, which might be terrible for me to say, but I think there's enough reasonable doubt that he should at least just serve life in prison, but still be in prison. Well, and yeah, stay he's, there. He's, he's enjoying it. He's living his best life in prison. Yeah. His, his wife and his, orthodox. and he looks crazy now. Does he? He didn't look like the pillar of sanity before. Yeah, he has um, declined. Is the, Was this guy in the news recently? Yeah, because they're, so he's the one that, our attorney general, he and one other man there who everyone's talking about, because this is going to be the first time we've executed someone in a while since we haven't had access to one of the execution do- drugs. So, but they're filing and they they want them dead before the end of this year. Yeah, save the save us a little money. Mm, executions <laughs> are really expensive, so I don't know. Oh, well, is that gonna do it for us this week, Katie? That is all. Yes. All right, guys. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail dot com. That's f o u r cornerscrimecast at gmail dot com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast, on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast, on Twitter at Four Corners Cast, and at Four Corners Crimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, Four Corners Crimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list or to send in an idea for an episode you want to hear, or to get your uh, free sticker from our merch store by typing in Bingo Bangalore. Alright guys, well we will talk to you next week. See ya.